Welcome again, everyone. We are in a series called Discipleship Begins at Home. And it's really focusing on how we as Christian adults today need to refocus our energy and our efforts and our resources on pouring into the generations coming behind us, discipling them to follow Jesus, to love God and to love others. And we've been looking at different things that are important for us to, to focus on and, and pour into those young people. We started with demonstrating priorities, how important it is to set that example for those that are coming behind us, but also teach them, here's the order of priorities that God wants you to have for your life. Then we talked about communicating love, God's love for us, and how God's love for us should motivate us to love one another. And they need to see and learn how to love like that. And then we talked about teaching responsibility. Uh, we need to emphasize to them they have to take responsibility for their own lives, their own decisions, their own choices, and they need to see us doing that as well. And then we had a time we talked about respecting authority. Uh, God has established certain authorities in our lives that we need to come under and respect and submit to, and that's a hard thing to do. We have to get our pride out of the way and humble ourselves and submit to authority and have the proper respect for authority in our lives. Last week, we talked about how essential it is that we focus on bringing up those behind us to commit their lives to God, to honoring God, loving God, serving God. That's where they're going to find the best life, and we want them to have the best, and God wants them to have the best. Today, we're focusing on developing courage. There was once an eccentric millionaire who collected live alligators, and he kept them in a swimming pool at the back of his estate behind his beautiful mansion. He uh, was throwing a huge party one night, and during the party, he got up and announced for any of his guests, he said, listen, I've got a contest I want to do, a proposition that I want to give every man here. I will give $5 million or this estate to any man who will jump in that pool, swim across unharmed, and come out safely on the other side. And as soon as he finished saying it, there was a loud splash, and there was a guy that was swimming in the pool, and all the crowd got around and started cheering him on. And sure enough, he got safely to the other side and got out of the pool, and the millionaire said, I'm so impressed, and I'm a man of my word. So what would you rather have, $5 million or this beautiful estate? I'll give you either one. He says, quite frankly, I don't want your money and I don't want your estate. I just want the name of the guy who pushed me in the pool. <laughs> Sometimes what looks like courage to us is not really courage at all. And today we're going to focus on a character in the Old Testament whose name is probably familiar to a lot of you. It's David. And a lot of us know something about David, even if we don't know all the details of his life. And we're going to focus on a time early on in David's life. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. David grew up to be an amazing, courageous leader. And we see that early on in his life, this, this courage that he had in his life. And I want us to see why, what it is in his life and the way he was raised and how he grew up that helped develop that kind of courage for him. Because if we can learn from that, we can pour courage into those that are coming behind us. So three things I want us to focus on. First, the advantages that David had in his life. Let's pick up here with verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Now, when he says mourn for Saul, he's not saying that Saul has died. He hasn't. Saul is still alive. He's still serving as king. 
But Saul's heart had turned from God, and God had removed his spirit from Saul's life and made the decision that he would no longer bless him and honor him as king, that instead he would choose someone else to take his place in the future. So he says to Samuel, who was now serving as God's prophet, How long will you keep mourning because I've rejected Saul as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now, a lot of you know the town of Bethlehem, right? It's it's really prominent in the life of Jesus where he was born. But this city existed long before Jesus came as that baby. And it existed as a small village. It was more of a remote, out-in-the-country kind of village uh, where it didn't have a large population. And a lot of its residents actually uh, didn't live in the town. They lived outside in the country areas around the town. And Jesse was one of those who lived there in that area. He says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So already God is narrowing it down for Samuel. He said, it's going to be one of Jesse's sons that's going to be the next king to replace Saul. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Saul had already turned uh, very bitter and, and somewhat evil in his thoughts and actions. And so Samuel was concerned about his own life. If Saul knew that he was going to anoint uh, someone else to be king, he might want to try to kill Samuel. So the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to appoint for me the one I indicate. So he says, I'll take care of you. You you do this in this way. You're going to go there, invite Jesse to participate with you in a sacrifice to God. And then during that time, I'm going to show you what to do. And I'm going to tell you who is the right person, the right son to appoint as king, to anoint to be the next king. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. You see, one reason they trembled was Samuel is the prophet of God in that time, and he's coming from Saul's area, and they knew Saul to be very angry right now, and he's doing some terrible things, and they felt like this could be a pronouncement of some kind of judgment, and they were afraid when Samuel came there. So they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Now, that's somewhat of a long introduction for you today, but I wanted you to hear a good part of the body of the story to understand the circumstances under which David was growing up. He was from a small town. And and I believe that was for David, in this case, somewhat of an advantage. Uh, In fact, they lived most likely out in the country outside of the town of Bethlehem. 
When you grow up out in the country, things happen differently sometimes. And in this case, we know uh, that David was given responsibility at a very young age. That can help develop courage. When you, when you have jobs that you could give to younger people that require a little bit of risk sometimes, then it helps them grow up and gain confidence and mature in their understanding that they can do things that, that maybe they thought only older kids could do, but they've learned to do them. We know that he was given a responsibility because it says he was out tending the sheep while all of this was going on. That seemed to be a regular job that he had. His dad owned uh, sheep, most likely, and he's out there tending those sheep for his father. And so he, he was at a young age being given some responsibility. And when you have responsibility given to you, here's what happens. Sometimes you will mess up. But if a father or, or mother or some other adult that has given you that responsibility allows you to learn from that and try again, here's what happens. It builds confidence and courage for you. When you see that even if you mess up sometimes, you can have another chance, you can have another opportunity. Or sometimes what happens is, is you handle it really well and then you get that input or that feedback of, feeling good about what you've done, and also others telling you, you did a great job, and now you can have even more responsibility. And that continues to grow your courage. It has to be reasonable risk, of course. Uh, you don't want to take young people and put them in a place where they are put under such a risk that it is actually too dangerous. But I believe in our culture, we've erred too far the other way a lot of times. We are so protective of children today that we don't allow them to take any risk. And when they never are allowed to take any risk, then fear begins to form in their lives instead of courage. We have, we have anxiousness in the place of confidence in what their abilities might be. So we have to be creative. When I was growing up, it was a little easier. Our parents could send us out in the morning. We could play in the neighborhood. We could do chores. We could do things uh, uh, around the area. We could go hiking off into the woods. There were things we could do without nearly as much risk as we have in our culture today. So we have to be even more creative with thinking of ways we can entrust our children with some responsibility and allow them sometimes even to fail as hard as that is for parents because they can gain confidence from not the failure part, but from the getting back up and trying again part, where they can learn something over time through trial and failing and getting back up and repeating that. You can gain confidence that, yes, I can learn to do things and I can achieve hard things, and that builds their courage. I think David also had an advantage from being from a large family. I mean, I mean, he had seven brothers, right? And, and we don't know if there are other members of the family there. We know about the seven brothers. And, and here he is growing up with seven brothers. Uh, I didn't have a real large family growing up. I have two brothers. We're very close in age. So we had to share a room growing up. We had a very small house. And we were all three in one room. And, and think about that today. In the average American home today, our houses have gotten bigger by far. And our family sizes have gotten smaller. More and more families have fewer children and live in larger houses. And we have this mindset that they need to have their own room and their own stuff and, and, and you know, be, be, uh, have all these advantages. And, and it's with a good intent. We want to give our children every advantage we can. 
but sometimes I think that's a disadvantage because they don't learn to have to work with other people and share with other people and care about other people the way they need to. And there's no challenge to them because oftentimes they're maybe even the only child in the home a lot of times. I married an only child. And uh, I didn't know the difference having been raised with two brothers. Uh, we thought it was normal to you know, pick at each other and sometimes make fun of each other. And we oftentimes argue with each other. And when we first had our first child uh, in our family, Heather was born. And Sue Ann seemed to be handling that just fine with one child. And then we had another child, Bobby was born. And as they got a little older, there began to be that sibling rivalry. And that he's touching me or, or she's on my side in the car and all that stuff started happening. And Sue Ann said, I don't know how to deal with that. I never had that as a child growing up. I was an only child. You see, when, you, when our children don't have to deal with any of that growing up, in the adult world, they're going to have to deal with some of those things. And they're not going to have the courage to deal with it properly if we've not been creative in allowing them to have the advantage of having to deal with some of those things first. I'm not saying you've got to have more kids. I'm just saying we have to look at ways that we can create those situations where they have to learn to be courageous, even when they're being challenged or someone may be making fun of them. I know bullying is a huge problem in our culture today, and I have no doubt it's always been around. But I think we need to teach children that bullying is always wrong. But we also need to toughen up our children that when somebody ridicules them or makes fun of them, it doesn't crush them in the process. They need to be able to have courage in the face of those kinds of challenges. And David had that advantage. He also had another advantage that I think sometimes we overlook. He was allowed to pursue other interests other than just the jobs that his dad needed him to do, like the shepherd work that he was doing. We know for a fact that he was allowed to pursue his interest in music and poetry because we see the results of it in God's word. We see that he, that he played the lyre and that he also wrote music and poetry and, and we wrote sometimes the poetry was written intentionally to be put to music and so he was able to pursue another interest that for some people they might think oh that's not a very manly thing or that may not be the the rough and tough kind of thing you would want him to be doing if he's going to be out there as a shepherd who got to toughen him up but his family allowed him to pursue those other interests that he had too and we are all blessed because of it. If you just read the Psalms that he wrote, and, and often those have been put to music in a lot of our praise courses, what a blessing they are to all the generations that have come after that. So I think he had some great advantages here. And it led to the place where David had a great balance. Here's the balance we need for our children coming behind us. He had the balance between being tough and being tender, being courageous and caring at the same time. If you just read those psalms and hear the heart of David, you know there was a tenderness there. There was a care and a concern for others there. But there was also this courageous toughness you see in his life that he lived out. And what we need to try to do is get back to a better balance and how we pour into and disciple the children coming behind us today. So I think those were the advantages. He was not overparented, but he was given the guidance that he needed to be able to be tough and to be tender, to have courage and to care. Well, the second uh, attribute that I think uh, advantage that he had is the anointing uh, that he had. Uh, it says in verse 6, remember Samuel goes there. It says when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab 
and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, why do you think he thought Eliab was going to be the king? Why do you think when he saw him right away, just by looking at him, outward appearance, he thought he was going to be the king? You know why? Because he was tall. He was tall and impressive in outward appearance. And he thought that meant he, he would be the natural fit to be the king. And I think sometimes we make that mistake in our culture too, that, that we think tall people make better leaders. And I'm frankly offended by that. I don't know why anybody has to think that way. I remember a great guy, uh, Dr. Marshall Leggett, who was a great preacher and he served as the president of Milligan College for a number of years. And uh, at a men's retreat that I went to, actually it was a pastor's retreat that I went to, he was the speaker there for the pastor's retreat. And while he was there, he told us about how he had set up an organization for short preachers. He called it the Society of Zacchaeus. And for some reason, he invited me to be a part of it. I'm not sure why, but he invited me to be a part of that. And part of the ceremony, he talked about how people unfairly look at and talk about and judge short people. He says, listen to the wording we use. If you admire someone, you look up to them. If you have no regard, you look down on them. Someone is generous, they're big, big-hearted. Someone is stingy, they're small or small-minded, right? If you want to make fun of someone, what do you do? You belittle them. Sometimes I just want to be big somebody. But no, we say we belittle them. Even the Bible, this is the thing that hurts the most, he said. Even the Bible got in on it. Listen to what it says. The wicked shall be cut short. You see, short people, short people sometimes are judged unfairly. And sometimes tall people or fat or skinny or whatever label you want to put on someone, we look at outward appearance and judge them unfairly. Samuel needed to learn something from God here about what God looks at. And that's what we need to learn as we look at children, those coming behind us, is to look at what God sees. It says in verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart. You see, that's what matters most to God. It's not the outward appearance. It doesn't mean you shouldn't care about outward appearance and you shouldn't try to be healthy and, and take care of yourself. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the highest priority is what's on the inside. It's the heart. So they sent for David after God gets that across to Samuel. So Samuel knows that's not what he needs to look for there. And again, in verse 12, it says he sent for him, had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. So see, David looked nice too. He was he was not the tall guy that Eliab was, but he still was a fine-looking young man. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Now, why is the anointing such a big deal? Well, I believe it's because it gave David courage that God did that through the prophet Samuel to set him apart in that way and say, David, I, I see this in you. I know other people saw you as just that young brother. And maybe your dad just saw you as right now this kid who could take care of the sheep. But what I see in you is a king for my people. We, he saw in that young man's life the potential that he had placed in that young man. 
And when we look at young men and young women in our culture today, we need to be able to see with the eyes of God, not just the outward appearance of those people, but the, the inward seeds that God has planted there to, to bring out the potential of what God wants for them in their lives. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we are told this, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Did you catch that one admonition he gave? He said, encourage the disheartened. So many young people today are growing up without very much encouragement being poured into them. The word encourage means to pour courage into someone. And in order to do that, we have to allow them to take reasonable risk. And we have to allow them to stretch themselves. And we have to, to come along and encourage them to, to take those chances and, and, and step out and try those things that they feel like they might want to try, but they're a little bit afraid to do. We need to be pouring courage into them. I'm so blessed that in my life, I had uh, Sue Ann's dad for, he was, he was only around for a short time after we got married. Uh, he died with cancer at a young age. But for the short time that I was around him, he was very good at pouring courage into me. Uh, I had made a decision that I wanted to go uh, be a preacher. And he allowed me to come to a church that he was preaching at and preach my very first sermon there. And I was scared to death. I've never been more scared in my life than to get up there and preach a sermon in front of a congregation for the very first time. And I, and I got up there and I did my best and I felt like I went too fast and I felt like I, I didn't say everything I wanted to say and I said some things the wrong way and I got done with it and I was, I was petrified that I really just hadn't done a very good job. And Gene came up to me and he said, Son, you're going to be a really good preacher. Thank you for doing that today. And I have a phrase I use a lot being from Georgia. I say that was like saying sick him to a bulldog. Man, that's exactly what I needed to hear right then. And my wife poured courage into me by telling me you did a great job. I was so proud of you. And, and even Lois, my mother-in-law, said, yeah, you did all right. You know? So they, they poured courage into me. And that allowed me to feel like, I could keep trying to do this. I could do this again. You see, the only way to get better at it is to keep working at it and honing that skill and improving over time. But if you get discouraged early on, you may never keep trying. So we've got to look for those opportunities to pour courage into those coming behind us. So the anointing, I believe, was the beginning place for David's life where he understood that God saw something in him that was big and, and powerful and important that he could do with his life. And so when he was set apart for that, it was an encouragement to him. Well, then we can see the results of that, and that is the achievements in David's life. In verse 13, the second part of that verse, it says this, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And here's the part, from that day, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. You see, it's not enough just to have courage. Courage misdirected can cause you to do great harm and great damage. You won't ever achieve what God wants you, wants you to achieve just because of human courage that you have. Human courage have caused, has caused people to, to destroy other people and to tear down what others have built. Just human secular courage can be so misdirected. 
But notice it says it's the spirit of the Lord that was upon David. It was the spirit of God that, that came powerfully on David. You see, when he was willing to step out in courage, he was doing so because he felt like God was placing trust in him. And God comes alongside David and enters into David with, by his spirit to give him the powerful, courageous encouragement that he needed to do the things that God was going to call him to do in his life. And from that point on, David acted out on that courage led by the Spirit of God. It doesn't mean he was perfect. We know he made some terrible mistakes, but he was courageous enough to pick himself up and go again with God's help. It started out after that time he was invited to come into the palace to play the lyre for the king. Now some translations say heart, but, but the, the word that's used there in the original Hebrew means the lyre. It, 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 lyre or lyre is pronounced both ways. And it's an instrument very much like a harp, only it was a little bit more like a guitar without the neck of the guitar attached to it. It had strings that went over the top of, of a fret and they could tune it. They had tuning pegs in it and they could play different notes and different sounds with it. The lyre was something that was easy to carry around with you and play in different places and and Saul was distressed so much they said bring somebody in that could play music for the king that could soothe him and they picked David to come to the palace and do that and that took great courage you know why because if if the king had not liked what he was doing was displeased with him he could have punished him he could have even executed him but David had the courage as a young man to go play for the king to try to soothe the king and then he also was, uh, after the king was pleased with that, he made David one of his armor bearers. So that was another position of responsibility that he was given. And, and then beyond that, we know the story of David and Goliath. If you know anything about David, you probably have heard the story of David and Goliath. Think about the courage that it took. David goes out to the battlefield where his older brothers are out there in the army. David wasn't old enough yet. He wasn't allowed to serve in the army. He's just delivering food to his brothers. But when he hears what's going on, he overhears how afraid the army is of this giant Goliath. He starts asking questions about what, what's the deal here? What's going on? And, and you know how Goliath was taunting God's people, threatening them, ridiculing them. And David would have no part of it. So he went to Saul and asked for permission to go up against Goliath. And Saul didn't want to do it. He said, you're too young. You can't do this. You're not an experienced warrior like Goliath is. You wouldn't have a chance. And we know that David, David didn't get courage just from his own belief in himself. We know from his own words that when he went up against this giant, when he went up against Goliath, he said, I come to you in the name of God, the one and only true God. He will deliver you in our hands today. You see, he was encouraged by the power of the God that he knew and loved and served. We need to pour into the children coming behind us that confidence in God. You see, he claimed victory in the name of God. The same God that David claimed victory in is our God. He's the same God today. When we face the giants of our lives, when our children, our generations coming behind us face the giants in their life, they need to know that there's a God that they can have confidence in to be with them and provide for them and care for them in the face of those giants. Are we pouring that kind of courage into our children? They need to hear these stories of the courageous people in Scripture like David who's, 
who, who saw God come through for him, not just then, but after that, he achieved great victories in battle, leading the armies of God. And he ended up being king and leading the, the nation to one of its high points in history. But was it just David? There's story after story, example after example, all through God's word of how God has poured courage into men and women who have gone on to achieve great things in the name of God. Just think about the early church leaders in the New Testament. When the church first got started, they faced great opposition. And these courageous leaders, the apostles and the other followers of Jesus, they knew that standing up for Jesus meant they were going to be ridiculed, they were going to be persecuted, and many of them were executed, put to death for their faith. But they courageously took their stand for Jesus. Now, I just want to focus on this for a moment for our nation, for our culture, for our kids. I grew up at a time in our nation where to be a Christian was hardly ever ridiculed. In fact, it was mostly supported by the overwhelming majority. But friends, things are changing for the kids growing up today in our culture. And it's not as supported as it used to be. And I'm convinced that those children growing up today are going to need more courage than I needed to have to stand up for Jesus as a child growing up in my culture. So we have to understand the need is even greater right now for these children, for them to learn from the stories of David and, and, and the apostles and all those that have come after them who have taken their stand. Here's what you need to know. This may be new for America, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world who have already had to have this kind of courage to stand up against opposition and ridicule and punishment and even death because of their faith in Jesus. And I'm so thankful for the courage of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who have courageously continued to take their stand for Christ. We need to pour that kind of courage into our young people. I pray they never have to face that kind of persecution. But if we did have to, would we have the courage to respond in the right way? Well, I want to close with a passage from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Part of this passage is quoted often, but I want to get a little bit more of the, the total setting of the passage. It is in the letters to the churches that begin the book of Revelation. This is in the letter to the church in Smyrna. Isn't that cool? We've got a campus in Smyrna. And this is a letter to the church in Smyrna and that part of the world. And in Revelation 2 and verse 10, it says this, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. So what does he say they're about to do? Suffer. But he's saying, I want you to have courage, even though you know there's going to be suffering. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. So he says, you're going to have a period of suffering. There's no doubt about it. You may have to go to prison, go to jail for your faith. Spend some time there. But here's what I want you to do. Don't be afraid of that. Instead, he says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. God wants us to know that even if it meant we had to face death, and all of us will have to face that, we'll all have to face suffering in this life, we'll all have to face death, are we pouring courage into our children so that when they face suffering and they face death, either of someone they love or even their own, will they be able to face it without paralyzing fear in their lives? Will they have courage in the face of those things. 
He says it is possible with with learning about God and God's love and God's presence and God's provision. It is possible for us to be faithful even to the point of death because we know God's promise to give us life as a crown, as a reward, the life eternal that we find in Jesus. May we be a generation who pours that kind of courage into the children coming behind us. If you need that courage for your life, then it begins with putting your trust in God. We want to help you to take that step. If you message us, contact us, we'll be happy to follow up with you and help lead and guide you through those steps to have that kind of courageous way of life for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of David and his courage. We pray that we can all learn to trust in you in such a way that we're willing to step out and take the risk that you want us to take, to take the action that you want us to participate in, to stand up and be faithful even in the face of trials. Father, may we set that example for the generations coming behind us and may we teach them to have that kind of courage because of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.